Uh, there's a fun little game, you may have played it before, team building game. Sometimes we play it in youth group. It's called Telephone. I don't know if you've ever played Telephone. Very simple. You just need a group of people, and the more the merrier in that case, where you start with one person at the front, and they've got a very simple message. So this one person has a message, and it's, my, you know, it's something like, I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Something very simple. And then the person with that first message then whispers that message to the next person, who then whispers it to the next person, and they whisper it to the next, all the way down the line until you get to the end. And then the last person announces to the group what they heard. And the hope is that the message made it all the way through the group unchanged. But that's pretty rare, especially with a larger group of people. Usually something gets mixed up and confused along the way, and that's what makes the game fun. But almost always, if you've ever played it, there's at least one rascal in the group who deliberately changes the message to make it something wildly different in the outcome than it was at the start. I mean, some of y'all, it ends up being nothing like peanut butter and jelly at all. It ends up being something entirely different. Some of y'all know that because you are that rascal. Because you live for stuff like that, right? To create some chaos in the midst of uh, order, right? Uh, we've all done that, I hope. That's what makes it fun. Well, y'all, today we're in... First John, we're going to begin this great letter it's right there toward the back of your Bible. If you get to Revelation, you went a little too far, but you're almost, you're very close. Because right after First and Second Peter, we've got the three letters of John and then Jude and then Revelation at the end. The Apostle John is now an old man. He is, he is very much advanced in years at this point. He's written, of course, the Gospel. He's the author of Revelation. But right here toward the end, he writes these three short little letters. Second John and Third John are especially short. But he's writing these to the church. And we're looking at the first of these three letters, which is incredibly rich and wonderful. It's going to absolutely bless us if you stick with us and walk through this with us as a church. First, John. But I want to begin this this morning with the occasion for his writing. You know, uh, sometimes, of course, we're so far removed from this place in time that we just open up our Bible to First John. We give no thought to how it got here, maybe. But John writes this letter around perhaps... 90 A.D., several decades now after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But y'all consider this, that at the time John is writing, nobody had a complete finished copy of the Bible. Certainly not the New Testament. It hadn't been finished yet. John is writing it as we speak here. And so for Christians in the early church, you know, a pastor couldn't get up and say, turn to 1 John. There was no 1 John at this point. And certainly nobody had a Bible like this back then. They had scrolls. The printing press hadn't been invented, right? And so most of Christian teaching and theology in the early church came through what we might call verbal transmission. It was word of mouth. Most people were not yet literate, and they didn't have a complete copy of the Bible, and so it had to be shared person to person. And so a person would share the gospel of Jesus with another, who would share it with another, and then another. And like the telephone game there was always the potential for some confusion or dilution of the message, always a need to be brought back to the original source. But it's worse than that in John's case. It wasn't just that people get confused from time to time. In John's day, there were a slew of false teachers who were maliciously trying to intercept and change the message of Jesus. And what they were teaching on the side was in absolute contrast with the truth. 
So there were people out there in John's day teaching that Jesus was not really divine. He's not really the Son of God. They were also saying that Jesus' death was not really sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. There were people, in other words, who were teaching a flat denial of the heart of the Christian faith. These weren't just minor disagreements. They were going entirely off-road into some other message. In, in, uh, and, and John, of course, who would not tolerate such an aberration, he sits down with pen to paper and he writes a letter to the church. And so part of John's purpose in writing this letter is to combat the false teachings that were trying to infiltrate the people of God. Now, you'll notice as we start here that John is so eager to get going, he doesn't even mention his own name and introduction. There are no pleasantries, no greetings. He just throws us right into the deep end of the pool, verse 1, okay? And here's what John wants to do, at least for our purposes today. We're only going to look at four verses. John wants to show us what for him is of first importance, the absolute most essential thing there is in all the world. It's the truth of Christianity, which rests on a divine person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so John's goal here is not merely to make sure we have the proper information, as important as that is. But he wants us to know that Jesus has granted to us actual relationship with God. More than just the facts of our religion, we have a relationship with God and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what it is to be a Christian. So, of course, there's no one better to attest to this than John, because John was one of the original disciples. John walked with Jesus in the flesh. And so this letter begins with John um, appealing to that credibility. He takes us back to the beginning. He is the source material here, because this is what he has experienced. And so we're going to read this little section all together before we zoom in on the particulars. This is 1 John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. John begins, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So something I just mentioned, you know, part of John's focus, it's very obvious in these early verses, is to establish or maybe reestablish the credibility of his message. He, along with the other apostles, which I think is why he uses the term we, he and the apostles who were very present in the life and ministry of Jesus, they were there. And so he speaks, you notice, in very forensic language to start, like an eyewitness giving testimony in court. He says, this is what we heard and what we saw, even what we touched with our hands. In other words, John is not giving a testimony that was passed down to him. He was there. He heard Jesus speak. He he was covered in his dust as he walked behind him. John was present. The Apostle Paul speaks in these same terms 
in 1 Corinthians 15, don't, don't turn there, but Paul says there that Jesus died and was buried, and then He rose from the dead, and He appeared to us. In the flesh, risen from the grave, Paul says, Jesus appeared to over 500 people, some of whom have died at that point, but most are still living. You can go and talk to them and hear for yourself. Me included, Paul says, we've seen Him. We really saw Him and touched Him. Now, there's a short point to be made here, but it's one that is absolutely essential. Y'all, there is no Christianity without a real crucified and resurrected Jesus. We're not here to admire the teachings of a wise man who lived a long time ago. We're here because that man was and is the Son of God, whose death made atonement for our sins and whose resurrection gives both him and us eternal victory over the grave. Any lesser, merely therapeutic form of Christianity must be rejected. John says we saw Him and we touched Him, both before the cross, but more astonishingly, after the empty tomb, we saw Him and we touched Him. He really is alive. Now, y'all, that's a powerful message, the forensic message of Christianity. Jesus really did die and rise again. But what John is saying is even more than that. And so I want you to revisit verses 1 and 2 with me again. Look at verses 1 and 2 at the deeper level of what John's communicating. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we've seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. So John's credibility as an apostle is very important. I was there. I walked with him. I knew him. But more important to John, I think, right here, is not so much his identity as an apostle, but Jesus' identity. Jesus' divine identity. Because we have to answer the question, John does, who exactly did we hear and see and touch? (laughs) A great man? A wise teacher? A prophet? No. John says, we saw and heard and touched what was from the beginning. He calls him the word of life. This is parallel to how John started his gospel. If you're familiar with the book of John, the very first thing he says, chapter 1, verse 1, John says, in the beginning was the word, capital W, and the word was with God. And the Word was God. He's speaking of Jesus. And so John is undeniably clear in identifying Jesus as God. He is divine. And y'all, that that forms a connection point for us that for me at least it stops in my tracks. It takes our breath away, I think, when we see it. So let me try to help us here with it. Back in the spring, if you were with us in the spring, we studied the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And one of the main themes of Exodus is the holiness of God. It's right there on display at all times. God, in fact, in in Exodus, God is pictured often as flame, as fire, as smoke. 
When the people encounter God on the mountain, all they can see is smoke and flame and lightning, and it's, it's terror to see. And the reason God is pictured that way is because He's so absolutely glorious and pure and holy. He's so other than us that there's, He can't simply appear as we are in that way. He's got to show Himself for what He is. He's great, He's mighty, and in fact, a little scary. God is pictured in such a way that when He appears on the mountain in His manifest form, the smoke and the flame, God says, you can't touch the mountain. If anybody touches the mountain, you're in trouble. Don't even touch it. And then when God speaks to the people, the people are terrified at the sound of God's voice, and they say to Moses, Moses, you talk to God for us. If we hear the voice of God anymore, we might die. And then when Moses asks God to see His glory, God, let me see your glory, the Lord says, no one can see my face and live. The implication there is that there's an uncrossable gap between sinful human beings and a perfectly holy God. And and His holiness in that case is something that is terrible to consider. We don't belong in His presence because our sin keeps us separate. But I want you to consider right now what John is telling us in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 1. That God Himself has come down and He has been manifested. Kids, that word manifested means He's been made real to us in a way that He otherwise wasn't or couldn't be. We've seen Him in a different way. We've come to know Him in a new and real way, different from anything else we've ever experienced. And you notice how John terms it. He says... We heard Him. We touched Him. We saw Him. Now, how is that possible? Because remember, in Exodus, you can't see, you can't touch, you can't hear. This is the good news. This is the message of the Gospel. That God, in sending His Son, Jesus, has crossed that uncrossable gap for us to save us. That God, entirely of His own love and mercy, has humbled Himself by becoming one of us. The Word became flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. Jesus came to us as a man, revealing Himself to sinners, not to condemn us, but to rescue us, to redeem us. This is why John refers to Jesus as the Word of of life. What a name given to our Savior. The untouchable, unseeable God has become touchable. We see Him. We behold His glory because He has made Himself the Savior of sinners. He's brought us near to Himself because He loves us. John says the Word of life has come to us Whereas we could not make ourselves presentable to Him, we could not earn His favor and acceptance in our sin, He has come down to us, and now because He has been made manifest, we now proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. There's a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's in the books, Uh, in particular it's the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you've ever read the books. There's a place in that book where the great lion Aslan 
tells the children that they can no longer return to the land of Narnia, this magical land of wonder and mystery and joy. And of course, the children are devastated. They're flattened by that news. But Lucy, who's the youngest of the children, she expresses the real heart behind her sadness. Through tears, she says to Aslan, it isn't Narnia, you know. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? Of course, Aslan is the Christ figure in that story. And Lucy is declaring this very pure-hearted love, not for Narnia, not for the place, but for the person, for Aslan. We can live apart from Narnia, she says, but how can we live never meeting you? Now, this is essentially what John is saying to us about the good news of the gospel. When he says the life was manifested, he's communicating something that we, I don't think we really have a category for, and the Bible has to create one. We don't, we, what we tend to think of, I, I think, when we think of Jesus, Jesus is the person that God sent to us to show us the way to heaven and help us get there. In the same way that perhaps Aslan has shown the children the way into Narnia and he's helping them get to that place. But y'all, the gospel is so much better than that. Jesus is not your divine guide to eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. That's what John says. Jesus made this claim on his own. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus says, The Son has life in himself. And so he is able to give life to whomever he wishes. And so when John says to the church, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has been manifested to us, John is not talking about eternal life as a thing that we acquire. He's not even talking about it primarily as a place that we inhabit, heaven. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the very source and the embodiment of life. And so to proclaim eternal life is not to tell people how to get to heaven, but eternal life is to tell people how to know Christ. He is the life. This is why, y'all, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17... When Jesus defines terms, he speaks of eternal life. He's praying to the Father. Listen to what he says. This is so instructive. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they, the disciples, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is why when Jesus speaks of heaven in John 14, listen to what he says to his disciples about heaven. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You notice the emphasis here. It's not primarily on the place, but on the person. What makes heaven, heaven? It's the glorious personal presence of God and our eternal fellowship with Him. Heaven is not heaven because it's all the great experiences we never got to have on earth. Now we get to have them in heaven. 
when I was a kid, I used to think we played baseball with a lightning bolt. That's how I pictured heaven. Wouldn't that be so neat? And maybe so. Who knows? That's not what makes it heaven. What makes it heaven is that Christ is there. In fact, there is no sun or moon, the, the Scripture says, in heaven because He Himself is the light that illumines all things. It's knowing Him. That's what it makes it heaven. And see, now this is where John ties these threads together for us. There's a fellowship here. Remember, John's focus on the gospel is not chiefly just get the information right. It's coming to know this glorious person who has manifested himself to us. We have fellowship with him. And so when John ties these threads together here in this first paragraph, notice now how he links our fellowship with God to our fellowship, us, the church. You see that in verse 3 and 4. What we have seen and heard, John says, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. That word fellowship has a very deep meaning for John. And I, frankly, I feel a little conviction personally here as I preach this because, y'all, if you, if you receive the church emails, you know, if you read our Facebook, I'm always posting about fellowship. Hey, y'all, come out to our event. We're going to have it out there in the parking lot. We'll have bounce houses and cake and some great fellowship, which is, you know, when, I'm, when I say that, you know what I mean. We're going to enjoy time together, which is great. That's great. That's, that's an appropriate definition at, at one level. That's okay. That's fellowship. But that's not what John means when he uses that word, fellowship. Fellowship for John means we share together a deep identifying bond. We are unified as one entity, the church, based on something God has done. And therefore, we belong together. We have fellowship with one another in the same way that your arms have fellowship with the rest of your body. We are attached now as part of one thing, one family. And so when John speaks of the church, when the Bible speaks of the church as a family, as a household, as a body, we are all members now one of another. And so now we're going to shed more light on this in chapter 2. It's coming. But John is already making it clear that these false teachers, the ones who have denied the fundamentals of faith, the false teachers do not share in this fellowship that we have together. They are not of us, John will say in the next chapter. And why not? Is it just because John and these other teachers happen to differ on some minor issues? No. And see, this is where John is very careful and very serious in his distinctions. The false teachers have denied both the divine identity of Jesus and the saving work of Jesus, and therefore, they are not Christians. This is not a matter of lesser distinctions like Baptist to Methodist. This is essential Christian identity that prohibits fellowship in this case or allows it provided that we share together the proclamation of who Christ is. Now, we're going to address that negative side when it comes more in chapter 2, but today this, John puts this in the positive. This is an affirmation here for the church. And so let's look at it in those terms. When John says the proclamation of the gospel, 
gives us fellowship with one another, it's because, he says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so there's an order to this. There's a grounding for this. The thing that binds us together as Christians is the prior and greater bond that we enjoy with God himself. Christian fellowship is God's creation. He designed it. It was his idea. And then he brings it about through our union with him. So when you come to Christ by faith, you receive a new family along with him. You don't just enter into relationship with God, you enter in with the rest of us too. And that may be cause for concern for some of y'all when you look around, but it shouldn't be. Because it's this bond in Christ that now creates everything that the church is and ought to be. This is how John Stott put it a great many years ago as he wrote. Stott says, fellowship is a specifically Christian word and denotes that common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ and the indwelling spirit, which is the spiritual birthright of all believers. It is our common possession of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which makes us one. Now, y'all, the the application of this is, is remarkable. I want you to think about the church for just a second with me. In what universe, in what possible universe, could there ever be true, genuine, lasting, loving unity between rich and poor, between black and white, male and female, old and young, Republican and Democrat, state and Ole Miss? Let's get serious. In what universe can unity actually exist between such radically different people? How can it be that John writes about it and it's real, it's true, it's ours? It's only because we have a shared fellowship with the Father and the Son. There is a divine source to this. It's not just that we happen to get along or that we share common interests or live in the same geographical area. Like None of that by itself will ever do it. In fact, all of our differences will tear apart at the threads given enough time. We'll annoy each other to death. The only way we can ever have true, genuine, lasting, loving unity is that the divine love of the Son of God has come to our hearts and is now being expressed through us one to another. That's the church. The church which so often fails and fumbles this away, let's be honest. And yet this is the ideal that God has created in us. We can do this because we share the most essential, wonderful, powerful reality in all the world. We share the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why John says this in verse 4. You love verse 4. He says, this Jesus, this gospel, this fellowship is my greatest joy. Complete joy to see these threads tied together and the church come into existence. And so, y'all, here as we close, I want to try to encourage us, I hope, in this same joy, the same joy that filled John's heart and informed his words here. Y'all, remember now, 
It's very clear when we read what John is saying, he is absolutely concerned with truth, the facts. If you change the facts, as the false teachers did, you lose Christianity. The, the truth is so absolutely foundational and important. False teachers were denying these facts and they needed to be set straight. They needed a clear division between them. But at the same time, I hope it's clear that for John, this issue was not just about right information. John wants us to see Jesus, to see the person of Christ, to behold His glory, to receive life in His name, and to enjoy fellowship with God as a free gift of His grace. Eternal fellowship, both with God now and with one another, given to us as a gift. That's what John wants us to see, to know. And so as we close, I just want to rehearse again this good news and consider the contrast of the people's approach to God in Exodus and now John's affirmation of the heart of God in the Gospel. How can sinners like me, like you, how can sinners see the glory of a holy God without being consumed in judgment? Only if God makes Himself visible to us as an act of His own mercy and love. And that's what He's done in the sending of His Son. In Colossians, it says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. We can behold His glory without averting our eyes because He's come for our salvation. How can somebody like me ever hope to draw near to God, knowing that God is so other, so great and glorious and holy, how could I ever hope to enter into His presence and actually have fellowship with Him? Well, only if God, on His part, graciously draws me in, which is what Jesus has done in coming for us and dying on the cross on our behalf. That's why when the Scripture speaks of us, and our prior position, our standing before God, Romans chapter 5 says, at one time we were enemies of God in our sin. And yet now we have been reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Those who were once enemies have now been adopted as children through the death of Jesus Christ in our place. And so y'all, what this means is that everything we are as individuals, you individually, and us together collectively as a church, everything that we are boils down to one real life truth, one great reality, that eternal life has been made real to us, has been brought down and brought near to us, manifested. The eternal life which was with the Father is now proclaimed to us that Jesus Christ really came and really died and rose again so that all who trust in Him may now receive life in His name. Whereas once I was God's enemy, rebellious in my sin, now I am reconciled and made God's child, not by my own works, but by His grace given in Jesus Christ. That can be your testimony. 
and together as a church, it is ours. He is ours, and we are His. Let's pray. Father, this morning, um, I pray for a, a fresh and, and very precious truth here to come home to our hearts. What we've read in this letter of John, that your love and mercy and grace, your divine life, Lord, has come down, has been made real to us. That we might see and hear and even touch life in the person of Jesus Christ. You really, truly love us. And Lord, Jesus came into this world when the world was shrouded in darkness. Lord, we had done nothing to prime the pump. We had done nothing in ourselves, Lord, to merit, to get halfway, to earn anything, Lord. We were lost. And so, Father, we can only attribute this life, this grace to your heart, your insistence on bringing us to yourself and making us your children forever. Father, we owe everything to you this morning. And so we, I pray that we would stand in, a, in a, an appropriate sense of awe, that you would, you would care enough Lord, to give Your Son, You did not spare Him. You gave Him up for us all so that You might freely give us all things. And so we can right now, by faith, we sit firmly and securely in the greatest possible love, the greatest possible hope. We are secure forever. Father, this, because this is true, Lord, will You grant us a renewed sense of fellowship? If we have been stagnant or complacent or just distracted and we have not loved You, we have not prayed and sought You and enjoyed You, delighted in You, as we know we should, Father, would You, would you bless us this morning with the grace to return, knowing, Lord, that we don't have to earn our way back in. We simply turn to you afresh, and we are received as sons and daughters. Father, remove from us everything that might prevent fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. And Father, we thank you that we can laugh about the things that might ordinarily divide us in this world, that those things are laughable now to us, considering the grace we've been given together and that we now share. Your grace, which is so, so much more powerful than anything that might um, irk us or cause us to divide on this side of heaven. Lord, thank you for a unity that only Jesus could provide. Help us, Lord, to dig deeper to draw closer both to you and to one another as we enjoy the grace that we've been given. 
And we ask this, Lord, because we stand firmly on the awesome name of Jesus Christ, the word of life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.